Good evening, guys. Uh, I'm hoping that you guys remember the uh, the story that that that, that Anna read for us um, from Numbers 21, and then Jesus's brief interpretation of that. Um, but it is a bizarre story, is it not? It is a very, very bizarre story. And it is wrong for a number of reasons. Let me just run through a couple of them. One is, it seems like a little bit of an overkill. And the pun is intended there. Uh, uh, I mean, they are moaning about their limited dietary options. And, and then this punishment ensues. The snakes appear. Now, I have complained a lot about food in my life. Um, I've complained, not, not, my wife is a pretty decent cook. My mom was rubbish. Um, and I, I, I regularly complained about it. But never did she ever say, unleash the serpents. Um, you know, our, our, our family, although it was quite and is quite dysfunctional, it wasn't that dysfunctional. So it seems a little bit like an overkill. These people are complaining about food, snakes appear, boom. The second thing is that idolatry seems to be wrong in every page of the Bible. And a couple of uh, weeks ago, I think two weeks ago, there was a sermon about the golden calf and the fact that the golden calf is a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't make an image of, um, of God. You shouldn't worship it. And now all of a sudden, you have a bronze snake and it seems like they are at least looking at it, there's some sort of worship towards it. Why is that okay now? So that is the second thing that doesn't make sense. The third thing is, why a snake? I thought a snake is the bad guy. Um, in Leviticus 11, snakes, you're not allowed to eat snakes, which I think is, is, is still in practice. And uh, you, um, in, in the Garden of Eden, a snake is not a good guy. Now all of a sudden, the snake is the thing that heals you. What is up with the bronze snake? Again, a little bit of a pun intended. So if we want to understand this very tricky passage, we need to just be a little bit more humble and realize that we are busy with an ancient text. And we're going to need help. And we're going to need help from people who really know how to read these, these ancient stories. Before I get there, though, I want to just make a, a, a little... Mm, I just want to put something on the shelf here. And that is, we've spoken about it plenty of times at Dialogue before. But for at least three centuries or so, there's this philosophical idea that humans are basically good. It's just our societies that's let us down. It's just our systems which let us down. So basically, humans are good. Basically, humans are kind. Um, but because you've got systems like capitalism or communism, patriarchy, um, whiteness, uh, uh, gender normativity, n name it what you will, because of all of these systems, humans become corrupted through these things, but they are basically good. And that ideology came crashing down in the beginning of the 20th century because people were very excited about technology, they were very excited about solving all of our issues with each other and then what we did is we used our technology and we created the atom bomb and we just killed people much quicker than we were able before. So the 20th century was just this massive wake-up call that there's something wrong with us. I am however somewhat sad to report that that people seem to be going back now to this idea 
I say some intellectuals are now very excited about the idea that humans are basically good. That, however, is not the biblical idea. The Bible says a lot about humans. It says that we are made in the image of God. It says that we've got the spark of divinity inside of us. It says that we've got incredible dignity. It says that we are capable of incredible, a lot of goodness and a lot of creativity. Um, but it also says that there's something fundamentally wrong with humans. All right. Now, in the New Testament, what you often get is a principle. You will get a principle mainly through a guy like the Apostle Paul who will give you a principle, a theological principle. In the Old Testament, you don't have principles, you have pictures. So this is one lens that I think we need to pick, put on if we want to make sense of, of this passage. The Old Testament gives you a picture where the New Testament gives you a, a principle. So this story of the brazen snake is this vivid picture of what goes on in the human heart. All right. Let's, let's try and unpack that story a little bit. Manna. Manna is this, this thing that fell from the sky that God provided so that this massive group of people can survive in a desert that cannot sustain life, definitely not for thousands. There are a couple of options if you want to get geographically from Cairo or from, from Egypt to, to Israel. There is an option to go along the coast, and there's a little bit more vegetation, but unfortunately, there are a little bit more tribes as well. And these guys would have been uh, and, and were very hostile to the Israelites. So God decided to take them through the desert, but that meant... There's no way for them to get any food. There's no civilization. There's nothing. And he provides for them uh, miraculously in the form of manna, which is this powdery substance that fell from the sky that was unambiguously a miracle that they would collect and they would make different foods from this. I would say it is like a, a and, and this is not a, scientific opinion, but it's a little bit like soya today, in the sense that you can make anything out of soya. I am always amazed about how you get soya fill in the blank. And, um, and, and I'm, as a matter of fact, I think the milk tart might be soya milk tart there. Uh, who knows? But they, they would pick up this manna and they would just use it in a variety of ways to prepare dishes for themselves. And it was, like I said, God's provision. It was timely. It was Literally the thing that was keeping them alive. It was uh, miraculous. And what does, uh, what, what, what do we hear from the Israelites? We loathe this worthless manna. We loathe this, worth, this, this, this worthless food. There's another story in the Bible where a snake is involved. There's another story in the Bible where a snake is involved and humans are a little bit discontent with their limited menu. Can anybody tell me where that is? The Garden of Eden, all right? So I think this story is trying to remind us of the Garden of Eden. Here you've got a snake, snakes, again, and you've got people moaning about the amount of food that they are getting or the lack thereof or the lack of variety. And then in the Garden of Eden, again, we've got these two humans and, and they are, it seems, discontent with their, their limited food options. 
Here's something interesting. The, the story of the Garden of Eden is obviously one where they had everything. It was paradise. And a serpent comes in and he says, so what's going on here? And Adam and Eve says, it's amazing. It's paradise. We can eat whatever we want. We've got, we can play in that tree. We can swim there. We can eat this. We can eat this. Um, and, and, then, and then the serpent asks, everything? Oh, well, I mean, there's that one knowledge of good and evil. We're not allowed to go there. But that's it. And the serpent says, and you're satisfied with this situation? It seems very tyrannical. seems very totalitarian. What on earth is, 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 is going on? And all of a sudden, the, the human and the humans become unsatisfied, become discontent, and sin creeps into this world. It is this chronic discontent dissatisfaction with our circumstances it is this fear of missing out and that god is holding something back from us that that we actually need and the picture that you guys need to understand if there's one thing that you walk away with uh, tonight i hope it's this that with the hearts we have without a supernaturally transformed heart you can be in the Garden of Eden and still find something to be discontent about. You can be in paradise and with our hearts we will find something to moan, complain, rebel against. That is what these two stories are telling us about the nature of sin, the nature of humans, as a matter of fact. I am not on Facebook regularly and I realized many sentences start like that. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, I, I don't drink. Um, but, okay, I'm, I'm not on Facebook regularly, but this one time I'm on Facebook. And I see that there's a picture of our class of, I don't know what it was, 2000, 2004, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere there. And the, the heading says, the good old days. And I look at it and say, oh, okay, there we go, the good old days. Yeah, it was fun or whatever. And then as I reflected on that, a couple of things struck me. The first one was the girl who posted it with the heading, the good old days, absolutely hated school. I know this because I sat next to her in lower grade mathematics for at least five years. So, 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 so she, is, she, she was really not excited about, about school. When she was in school, she just desperately wanted to get out of school. But it seems now that she's out of school, she just desperately wants to get back into school. And as you look through the faces there, and you look at yourself, and you look at other people, then there's something that you, that you might recognize, and that is, man, I looked so much better back then. You know, hey, imagine that. Um, and just young and... and, and, and uh, and, and, and whatnot. Who of you have ever looked at all the photos of yourself and thought, oh, the good old days? Anyone? Okay. And the rest of you guys are liars. Uh, here's the thing. If you think about it hard enough, this is what you would realize. When that picture was taken, you were probably not very content at how you looked at the time. 
you were insecure back then as well, especially if it's a picture of you being a teenager in high school. You were super insecure about how you presented yourself, um, your looks, your intelligence, your status, whatever the case may be. So here's the thing. We are now looking back into this, this school photo and we are finding something to, to be nostalgic about. Yet, in the time that the picture represents, we've, uh, we were unhappy. We were probably just w wishing that we can get out of school so we can be grown up, so that we can do our own thing. Can you see there's something wrong in the human heart? We are unsatisfied back then. We are unsatisfied now. And this struck me really hard this week for a number of reasons. I... Um, I was away now for a, for a long time. We, we do these tours, and it's one of the ways in which I'm able to finance um, myself. And, uh, and I, a lot of people are jealous when they, because I see the world, and I, I guess there is an exciting element to it. But if you press me, I will probably tell you that I am a glorified chaperone. I'm a babysitter for teenagers in Europe whilst I show them where is the cheapest places to shop. Okay, uh, so so it's 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 not necessarily very uh, very glamorous, and when I was there now, I just wanted to get back into South Africa so badly. Uh, I think I told you when I when I just arrived and you just saw the cold, ugly East Rand. It just felt so homely to me. I just I just thought, oh thank God I'm back, and I just kissed you know the ground and everyone else, and. Uh, and I'm, I'm here and I'm trying to sort of get back into the rhythm of things. And somebody asked me, how, how are you doing? And I, I find myself saying, you know what? I kind of miss the routine of the tour. The fact that you know exactly what needs to happen. I need to get up. I need to get those people there. I need to call that bus. I need to explain that to them. I sort of miss the, the hustle of the tour. And there it is again. When I was on it, I couldn't wait to get back into South Africa. Now that I'm in South Africa, there's something in me... Uh, you know, if, if I'm not concentrating, I'm Googling something um, about Europe. Um, you know, when, when I'm not, not focusing, there's this uh, weird nostalgia. I find myself not just talking about um, the tours in such an uncharitable fashion. I found myself on numerous occasions thinking of church, thinking of dialogue as... Well, this is basically me preaching a message to a glorified cell group that they will forget within 24 hours, okay? Or what about the development stuff that we do, you know, in, in terms of townships or whatever? Well, we're trying to make one guy a little bit less poor than his neighbor, but it's definitely not going to make a dent in the bigger scheme of things. I have thought of these things, and, and this is what I'm keeping myself busy with, on numerous occasions. I'm afraid I have to admit that. And here's the thing. These are just different versions. Well, I just described how I experience my life sometimes. It is actually just a different version of we loathe this worthless manner. It's just a different version of these Israelites who are looking at a divine gift and saying it is absolutely worthless. The way that I look at tours and church and development is stupid, stupid, and stupid. This chronic dissatisfaction, this chronic discontent. 
I wonder if some of you guys can identify with that when you, when you think of your respective jobs and maybe there's something very monotonous about it or maybe you feel a little bit stuck. You, you have this discontent towards it. What lies behind this, friends? What did the serpent say to get us so unsatisfied, so discontent? Well, I mean, a variety of the following. He says that, does God really have your best interests at heart? What is he hiding from you? Maybe there's something that he's hiding, perhaps. He's telling you that maybe you must reach out for something and take, take that, and then you will be satisfied. The point that I'm trying to make is that distrust in God's provision and discontent is closely connected. To see something as a gift from God and to be unsatisfied they are very closely connected. Let me give you a couple of other examples of what this might play out, how this may, may, may play out. The serpent's questions in, in different ways. Um, maybe you feel like, hmm, you know what, it's my money. I can do with it what, is, what, what I want. I know the Bible says that we need to be generous. I know the Bible says that we must give and we must give till it hurts, etc., etc. But you know what? Um, I, I think it's just hiding something from me. The good life is just on the other side of that purchase that I need to make there or this experience that I need to buy for myself. You, you question God when he gives you this command. Another example would be in terms of describing God's view on sexuality, not on sexuality, but on, on his sexual commands as being very restricting, very totalitarian. Um, what is he hiding from me? Um, I, if, if I do that, I will have this euphoric experience. I must just indulge myself in that. And as soon as you think that, this discontent creeps in. You start to question God. You start to question his provision. And it doesn't make sense for you to wait or, or anything like that. So what happens? Fiery serpents come into the camp. Why, why are they fiery serpents? Were they literally on fire? We heard a couple of weeks ago about the burning bush, this, the story of the burning snakes. No, but what we do know about these snakes, the snakes in, the, in, in that area, is when they bit you, you got this insatiable thirst. It was almost impossible to quench that thirst. It really put your insides on fire, basically. And you, the only way to try and, uh, the only remedy is water, but you can never get enough of that. And in the desert, it's, it's not necessarily in oversupply. So they developed this unquenchable thirst. Here's what we need to understand, friends. This is again a picture, a physical picture of what is happening to us spiritually. There's that song in The Greatest Showman where that lady says, never enough. Never, never, never enough. Never, never, never enough for me. Never enough. I can go on and on and on. And, 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 and that is, again, also a, a very vivid picture of what goes on in our hearts. Always unsatisfied, never enough, never enough, never enough. Friends, uh, none of us here are celebrities, but you, you know who experiences the most are, are the celebrities. They are desperate. They think that if they can just get that contract, that movie, that whatever, and they've got this chronic 
this and uh, discontent and if you if you read their stories it is one tragedy after the next and a lot of it has to do i think with this spiritual condition that we suffer from it seems like israel gets it they they get that this picture that was given to them the is is a uh, is what is going on in their lives spiritually and they immediately repent they immediately repent which by the way is a good start if you want the healing of of Jesus then you have to understand if you have rather you have to admit that there's something wrong with you otherwise you can't get his healing so when he says i didn't come for the healthy i came for the sick he's basically saying i came for the people who realize that they are a mess who realize that they suck and that they are in need of of divine grace so the first step is to admit not to make excuses not to make accusations not to say but i still think that you overreacted no to admit that there is something wrong with us a chronic discontent a chronic suspicion and then what's the remedy put a snake on a pole how bizarre put a snake on the pole what are you supposed to do rub the snake three times climb the pole no just look at it look at the snake on the pole and you will be healed what's going on there you need to read fairy stories to understand this there's a huntsman in many fairy stories and there's a village and the village is just terrorized by a vampire or a werewolf or some sort of monster okay they call the huntsman please save the village and what does the huntsman do he hunts he gets the monster he decapitates the monster and then they put the monster's head on a stick and you say and and he walks into the town and he says guys you can relax order is restored here's the monster here's the vampire here's the werewolf a monster's head on a stick is a dead monster and it immediately means that there is order that can be restored back into the community we can we can uh, again live in in harmony this is not just something that you read in fairy stories as a matter of fact this is what what happened um in various wars over and over the centuries is that if you've just conquered a particular king or a particular general head on a stick um guys the fight is over we've conquered we've 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 we've, we've got this guy we've won what god is saying is that he has the power to destroy the snake and what the snake represents by putting it on a stick it is saying i can destroy this terrible sin the sin that creates this unquenchable constant discontent this constant suspicion this constant thirst i can destroy it it remains a very bizarre passage jesus however sheds a lot of light on it when he picks it up in john 3 He says just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert so the son of man must be lifted up in the desert. A lifted up serpent is a dead serpent. A lifted up son of man is a dead son of man. Now here's where it gets crazy but but also beautiful. Jesus somehow embodies the serpent. when he is lifted up on that cross he becomes the seed of that serpent he becomes sin itself 
He dies as the serpent. And I know this is very strange and it's very difficult for us to, to understand, but this is exactly what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness, we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, you have that, that very tragic line where Jesus says, I thirst. And it's almost as if he is experiencing this thing that is in our souls just to the most extreme degree. That insatiability that we can never quench. Jesus dies that death. He represents that. There's this wonderful parable, I say wonderful, but it's actually terrible, um, of, of Lazarus and the rich man, where this rich man is, is sending Lazarus to just dip his, his finger in water and just, just, just give him a drop of water because he is on fire in this place. And we've spoken about hell before, but l- let me just say this. If you... Do not nip this thing in the bud. If you do not now already ask God to intervene in your life, to do a heart transplant, that discontent will just continue into eternity. It is a flame that can never be, uh, never be quenched. It can never be extinguished. And if you do that for eternity, eventually there will be no you left even. That's the picture that we have of the rich man there in in hell. He's burning up. Don't over-literalize that image. He is burning up, discontent. Jesus becomes that on the cross. How are we healed? We just look at him. We just look at the lifted up Jesus. The elevated snake is what they had to look at in the wilderness. The lifted up Jesus is what we have to look at now. If you look at Jesus, what do you see? Maybe this is an image that might help you. Whom of you have seen the movie The Exorcist? It was a movie made in 1973. Won the Oscar that year. I remember it like yesterday. No. Uh, 1973, The Exorcist. Anybody? Okay, well, it is... uh, I I know... um, what you call horror movies, it's not for everyone. I know a movie called The Exorcist might not be for everyone, but as far as these horror supernatural movies go, this is probably the original and this is probably the best, and it was the first time that the horror genre broke into the Academy Awards, all right? And it tells the story of a little girl called Reagan, and she is possessed, and man, oh man, is she possessed. I mean, there's amazing visuals for, you know, 1970s cinema. And they, they asked the help of a priest, one Dr. Damien Karras. And, and Father Karras is an interesting character because he's a priest, but he really doubts his faith, and maybe the reason why he doubts his faith is he recently finished his studies at Harvard University, and he uh, he goes to to to, to try and uh, solve this problem 
from a psychological perspective. So for um, the majority of the film, he's actually skeptical as to whether this girl is truly possessed. I mean, how he can be skeptical looking at that girl um, is, is, is a miracle in itself. But, but he goes and he's, he's constantly sort of very, he's very psychologist-y about his, his, his you know, even though he's dealing there with something supernatural. And uh, eventually he realizes that he needs help. So he calls in another priest, Father Mirren. And when Father Mirren just enters the house, this girl just lets out this squeal, Mirren. And uh, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's about to go down. So, so he's an established exorcist and, and this is an established demon. And he, he goes up and Father Karras, um, he, he, he tries to brief Meryn. He says, I think there are multiple personalities in her. And he says, no, there's only one personality in her. You can relax about that. He dismisses this you know, psychological mumbo-jumbo. And they pray for this girl and they try their best and she manifests and it's, it's very vivid and it's very scary. And in this struggle, Father Meryn, the old man, he has a heart attack and he dies. And this Father Karras, having dealt with this situation now for, for an extended time, he is he's obviously convinced by now, and he just appeals. He says, leave her, leave her. And then he says, come into me instead. Leave her, come into me. And as he's shaking this little girl, but at that stage just a horrible demon, you see... His eyes lighting up that this demon has shifted into him. And it looks kind of scary, like this is the beginning of where he becomes the bad guy. And then you just see this flicker of him still being Father Karras. It's still him, although the, the demon entered him. And what does he do? He hurls himself out of the window to fall to his death. And... You see the girl, for the first time, you see a little girl, not this monster, crying in the corner. Her parents come and embrace her for the first time in weeks. For the first time, they can embrace their, their child. They hug and they cry. These two priests died, dead. I, I thought about that. Well, well sorry, let me, let me just finish the story. Right at the end, this family is moving away from this house for obvious reasons. And the family is happy. For the first time, people are happy in the story. And as they drive away, the little girl says, stop, stop, stop. And she sees a random priest walking by and she recognizes the clerical collar, the Roman collar. She just runs to him, hugs his leg, says, thank you. Why did I think about that? Because, you see, when Paul says Jesus became sin, he, he embodied it. It is as if Jesus invited evil to come into him and he hurled himself onto the cross and there gave evil this definitive blow. And what is the right response to that? It is the response of the little girl who just sees something that resembles that divine gift that she experiences. And she goes over and embraces him.
embraces it. That is what it means, I think, to look at the cross, to look. And I think also that is a very vivid image of God taking evil into himself, onto himself, holds himself on the cross, and there evil is defeated. There's something else in this passage that I find striking. In John 3, verse 13, it says that Jesus descended from heaven. The Son of Man descended from heaven to be lifted up on a pole. Friends, if you know anything remotely surrounding uh, Trinitarian theology, what we mean by that is that Jesus was infinitely happy in the bosom of the Father. He didn't need to come down here. He didn't need to die for us on the cross. He was super, super infinitely happy. But yet, he empties himself. He, go, he, he, he um, takes on the likeness of man. He goes on the cross. He's lifted up on this cross. Why? Why does he do that? Because the only thing he didn't have is us. And the irony is so stark because we are constantly discontent and constantly trying to reach up. In the meantime, God is coming down. He's descending when we are trying our best to ascend constantly. And there on the cross, he forgives. There on the cross, he deals with sin. And that is, friends, if you, if you want to make sense, sense of John 3, verse 16, this very famous passage, maybe that is a picture that you need to have in mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When I, they, they, well, let me say this. There, there's this group of uh, theologians collectively referred to as Mumford and Sons. And they, they write this song, which I relate to as a hymn of sorts. It's called I Will Wait. Some of you m- might be familiar with it. Those of you who are not can leave. Um, so, so they write this, this song, I Will, leave, uh, I will, <laughs> I will Wait. <laughs> And this is how it goes. It says, so break my step and relent. In other words, make me slow. You forgave and I won't forget. Now what we've seen and him with less, now in some way shake the excess. What he's saying there is that we're seeing Jesus on the cross. We see how he forgives, forgave. I cannot forget that. That's the first thing. And then as you see him descending, emptying himself, that in some way can transform my heart to shake this constant discontent, this constant excess. He goes on and he says, because I will wait for you. And now it goes over into worship. He says, I'll be bold as well as strong and use my head alongside my heart. And then he prays, so tame my flesh and fix my eyes, a tethered mind free from the lies. The lies of the serpent that is constantly trying to convince us that God is hiding something from us, that we um, are constantly missing out. And he goes on and he says, so I'll kneel down and I will wait for now. I'll kneel down, I'll know my ground. Raise my hands, paint my spirit gold, and bow my head, keep my heart slow. I will wait, I will wait for you.